Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is our first podcast of 2021. Many optimists were hoping that the new year would be a departure from the historically awful past year. Needless to say, those among us were met with a sobering reminder that the damage that the Trump administration has done to our discourse and democracy will not be undone by simply electing a new president or beginning a new calendar year. The siege that we witnessed on the U.S. Capitol was terrifying, deadly, and sad. The president should resign or be impeached. Those who enabled him by spreading the big lie that the election was stolen should be expelled. There can be no healing or unity without accountability for the bigotry, violence, racism, disinformation, and insurrection. On this podcast, in the next year, we will focus on policy issues, LGBTQ impact litigation, judicial nominations, and so much more. Today, we are going to kick off this new year with Professor Art Leonard, where we will discuss three important cases from December on a wide range of issues, including access to medication for people living with HIV, access to health care for incarcerated transgender folk, and a case out of New York challenging what remains of our state's defamation statute and whether it should be legally sound to assume that being called gay is socially shameful. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Art, we have so much to talk about on this episode, but before we get into our regularly scheduled programming, I was wondering if you would offer a few thoughts on the week that we just saw uh, that kicked off 2021. Obviously, we started off with the news that we have elected two Democratic senators from Georgia, which means that Democrats now control the Senate. It means that we can bring uh, judgeships to the floor, uh, quality legislation to the floor, and so, so much more. We still face many challenges with the filibuster uh, and uh, certainly have to build support for all of the initiatives that we're trying to achieve, but things just got a hell of a lot easier, at least legislatively and policy-wise. But certainly when it comes to uh, the climate and the disinformation, the violence, the racism, the insurrection, uh, that is not changing. Would you like to reflect on what we saw uh, during the first week of 2021? Well, this first week of 2021 was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the first full week of 2021 was it was absolutely crazy. But uh, we got Congress to certify the Electoral College results. We got Trump finally abashed by the blowback to what happened on Wednesday, uh, recording a video saying there will be a smooth transition of power and he's not going to be there. <laughs> which means uh, if he's not going to be there, his folks aren't going to be there probably. So maybe there won't be disruption. Uh, so uh, on Twitter either. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that's, that's important to me at this point is that uh, he's got people working on making a complete list of all the Trump administration guidelines and policies and things like that, that need to be very quickly rescinded. 
And I think that will happen quickly. And that includes some of the ones that were to exclude us from coverage under various programs and things. Uh, some of the stuff that's in the form of regulations, uh, they've got to get the wheels turning under the Administrative Procedure Act to rescind those. They can't just do that with the, with the stroke of a pen. But he can certainly rescind executive orders. He can certainly rescind agency guidelines and things of that sort, which weren't formally adopted as regs and codified as such. Oh, absolutely. There are certainly a whole host of issues that need to be addressed. We have uh, several odious Trump rules and executive orders that were being challenged in court involving anti-bias and diversity training and whether LGBTQ people could seek asylum in the U U.S. Uh, all had positive court action last month and this month. I think there's going to be a lot of cleanup of the detritus from the Trump administration for the first few weeks of the new administration. And so the faster he gets his new cabinet people and the sub-cabinet people and the management level political appointees in, the better. And for that, of course, the Democratic control of the Senate was crucial because uh, the Republicans were going to do everything they could to delay that stuff and to hold up anyone who uh, didn't meet whatever litmus test they wanted to propose. Uh, so it's very important that the filibuster doesn't apply, that whoever controls the Senate controls the confirmation process, and that he's got uh, – many of them are, are pretty moderate people he's planning to nominate as cabinet secretaries and people at that level. And they're people who generally are well-known in Washington, who have experience from the Obama administration, some even from the Clinton administration. Uh, so they should be quickly confirmed, and the process of cleaning things up on the administrative end uh, should be proceeding very quickly. Yes, of course, and there are cabinet appointees, Merrick Garland at DOJ. Do you have any confidence or thoughts about um, those nominees and federal agencies and whether we'll see progress forward on racial justice, LB LGBT equality? Yes, I think that the Justice Department will go back to being an ally, and we should particularly focus on uh, what's going on with the Civil Rights Division. Uh, similarly, in the Education Department with Title IX, uh, we should be very focused on who's going to head the Office of Civil Rights in the Education Department. Uh, we should be very focused on who's going to be in charge of running Obamacare <laughs> for, uh, for Health and Human Services. Uh, I think we should be delighted with the nomination of Marty Walsh to be Secretary of Labor. Uh, he's uh, a staunch union background, uh, very uh, pro-LGBT as mayor of Boston. Uh, so um, we're, we're set to have some very strong allies in the government. And uh, the big problem is the Equality Act can still be fussed, uh, filibustered by the Republicans in the Senate. But perhaps there are enough moderate Republicans who will get together with the Democrats that could actually get it through. Because obviously it's going to pass the House again. But uh, the big challenge is getting it through the Senate. And we still need the Equality Act, even with the Bostock decision. There are still important gaps. For example, the federal public accommodations law doesn't cover sex. So the federal law doesn't help us any. We have to go with state and local laws on public accommodations. And we also need to get through the Equality Act a provision that uh, people don't get an automatic religious exemption from complying with anti-discrimination provisions. Okay, well, we've got a lot to cover, and I want to dig right in because we're going to be talking about the three cases that we typically do. You've got your of note segment, 
And uh, these are really interesting this, this month. So let's kick off the first case, which involves a lawsuit on behalf of a transgender woman who was being kept in a men's prison and was being denied hormone treatments that she had been taking uh, before incarceration. The plaintiff in this case argues that denying hormone treatment violates the Eighth Amendment protections against cruel and unusual punishment, which guarantee that prisoners will be given necessary medical treatments. After losing a panel of the Eleventh Circuit, the plaintiff sought a rehearing on Bonk. The Eleventh Circuit ultimately denied rehearing in this case. It was a contentious and rather fractured uh, opinion that we got here. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, denial of rehearing on Bonk? Okay, well, this is this is a rather complicated case, actually, and uh, it dates way back. Uh, the district court decision in this case was in August of 2018, uh, Cohane versus Florida. And the original uh, problem was that uh, she was being denied hormones in prison. The Florida prison system uh, had a rule that uh, you only got hormones if you were already getting hormones when you were incarcerated, and she, she wasn't. Uh, so first she was suing for hormones after she filed suit they changed their policy and they started her on hormones but they denied her the other things that go with the hormone treatment that is the ability to groom and dress in a feminine manner uh, they once she started to develop breasts they let her have a bra <laughs> okay and and they let her have uh, single showers not to have to use group showers because she's in a men's prison uh, and uh, they uh, agreed to use uh, female pronouns with her. But they wouldn't give her underwear, they wouldn't let her get cosmetics, they wouldn't let her grow her hair long, etc. cetera. Uh, so the case sort of evolved while it was before the district judge. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the argument that the prison system was making is that the hormone issue was moot because they were giving her hormones. Uh, and that the other things were just cosmetic and therefore there was no Eighth Amendment issue. That was uh, the uh, Florida uh, Department of Correction argument. The district court judge, uh, Mark Walker, who was an Obama appointee, uh, said no. Well, first of all, uh, they could change their policy any time on the hormones. You know, we want to make sure that she keeps getting the hormones she's entitled to. So he refused to find that that part of it was moot. And he further said that the other aspects of the treatment are part of the essential treatment for gender dysphoria, for severe gender dysphoria. It, it doesn't help to let the inmate have hormones if they can't live as a woman, if they can't dress and groom, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which of course raises all kinds of security issues for the prison people. They say, okay, we're gonna have someone presenting as a woman in an all men's prison. Think of the security issues we're going to have, the, the problems protecting her, et cetera, et cetera. But that's beside the point because this is, uh, you know, a severe gender dysphoria has been accepted as a serious medical condition by the courts. And this is part of the treatment. It's like providing only part of the treatment. It's not merely cosmetic. It's essential. Uh, so uh, the, the district judge issued an injunction. They said, no, you've got to give her, you've got to let her have female underwear, you've got to let her grow her hair, et cetera, et cetera. So that went up to a, uh, an 11th Circuit panel, and the panel ruled against her uh, with the dissent. It was a two-to-one in the panel. The panel decision was from uh, last March. 
And the panel said, no, the district court was wrong. The issue of hormones was moot. The injunction should not cover hormones. So they wouldn't affirm that part of it. And then they said, as to the other stuff, they said, uh, we don't think there was deliberate indifference because they gave her a bra. They allowed her to shower separately from the others and they agreed to use her pronouns. So they weren't totally de deliberately indifferent to the need to treat her as a woman. And uh, without meeting the deliberate indifference standard, there's no Eighth Amendment violation. So they refused to affirm the district court's order in total. And uh, there was a, an on-bank petition. Now, the 11th Circuit right now has 12 active judges, six of whom were appointed by President Trump. Of the remainder, a few were appointed by President Bush and a few were appointed by Obama and Clinton. Uh, so there was a denial of her hearing on bank and normally all you get with a denial of her hearing on bank is you get a little notice from the court saying that the court was polled and a majority did not support on bank and therefore there's no on bank in the district, uh, the three judge panel decision stands. But in this case, uh, the author of the panel decision who was a Trump appointee, Judge Newsom, decided to write a new opinion basically rechanneling the panel opinion to try to give it a little more oomph, I guess, uh, as now emanating in response to the petition for on bank. And uh, there were some other judges who wrote a separate opinion explaining uh, why uh, granting on bank review is, is discretionary and it doesn't necessarily indicate that the, that the court has any particular uh, uh, view on how the panel decided it. They just decided that they're not going to review it. And then there was a dissent from the denial of on bank uh, by uh, Judge uh, Rosenbaum, who was an Obama appointee, who was joined by uh, Judge Wilson, who was the dissenter in the panel. And they said that the majority just missed the boat. The district court had it right. And the big argument between the, the members of the panel, uh, and they spent like seven months on this, uh, Bill points out that the, the circuit really fractured over the issue of on bank. And they also fractured over the issue of how the federal court, uh, court of appeals is supposed to review a district court decision on an issue like this. Because usually when they're reviewing a district court decision on an issue like this as the findings of fact, they're supposed to accept the findings of fact of the district court judge unless based on their review of the record, there's a clear error. And they said there was no finding by the panel of a clear error. It's just the panel disagreed with the district judge about how to interpret the evidence, that the district judge discounted the experts who testified on behalf of the state because the district judge actually held a hearing on this. It wasn't just decided on paper. And uh, the district judge found that the experts were not credible. Uh, they, they were not appropriate. Uh, they put forward as an expert medical uh, witness someone who had no experience with dealing with transgender people, who had no particularized knowledge on the transition process and what is essential. And they did present someone who had a little more knowledge but who had no personal acquaintance with the plaintiff, that is, had not examined the plaintiff. And so was not in a position to give expert testimony on whether this particular individual needed these treatments. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the argument is that the panel used the wrong standard. And uh, on deliberate indifference, 
once you accept the factual findings of the district judge, uh, they can review deliberate indifference de novo as a question of law. But they can't do that with the factual findings. But now things are sort of up in the air because the panel decision didn't receive on-bank review. And uh, as uh, Bill Rold pointed out in this article, uh, he, he really went to town on this. He felt that it was really a significant thing, even though as opinions issued uh, coincident with the denial of hearing on bank, it's all dicta. He says it reflects what the judges are thinking and that it shows that the 11th Circuit is very fractured about how to deal with the issue of transgender uh, prisoners and what uh, treatment they're entitled to, not just in terms of medical procedures and medication, but in terms of dress and grooming. And of course, Florida's persistence that if this if someone hasn't had surgical alteration, they're not going to put her in a women's prison. So she's going to have to stay in a men's prison, which creates its own problems. Can you talk about how this opinion fits in with other circuit opinions around the country? We have a very difficult, difficult problem with prisons and transgender prisoners. We don't have national standards because the Supreme Court just will not grant cert petitions on these issues. They have, have not dealt with a transgender prisoner case ever, except for a very old case from decades ago, the Dee Farmer case, uh, which was about uh, protecting transgender prisoners from assault in prison. Apart from that, on the, on the treatment issues, the Supreme Court has totally ducked it. They've gotten lots of cert petitions over the years. Uh, the Edmo case, they denied cert, for example, which we reported on uh, out of the Ninth Circuit which held that a particular transgender prisoner was entitled to surgery in that case. And, and the circuit didn't say that all transgender prisoners are entitled to surgery. It said on the record, this particular prisoner had an extreme case of gender dysphoria, had tried to castrate herself several times, etc. It was clear that she was suicidal, that you had to give her the surgery uh, as a matter of uh, treatment for a serious medical condition. But you know, we don't have Supreme Courts, so we have the split of the circuits. We have the Fifth Circuit going one way, the Eleventh Circuit going another way. Uh, we have the First Circuit uh, with the Kosilic decision, which was uh, specifically rejected as precedent by the Ninth Circuit. We have a Seventh Circuit opinion, which seems to say that under certain circumstances, transgender prisoners are entitled to surgery. So it's a patchwork over the whole country. And uh, we've got, you know, I, I look at the Supreme Court is currently constituted, and I ask myself, do we want them to address this? Uh, this is an issue that doesn't get enough attention. And what are the chances of federal legislation that could address this issue nationwide? Well, legislation could address it for the federal prison system, certainly. Uh, and uh, many of these cases involve federal prisons, but the overwhelming majority involve state prisons. Uh, so uh, a constitutional ruling across the board might be more helpful. I'm not sure what Congress could do on state prison. Okay, well, let's leave it there, and we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the second case on the docket. Okay, we're back. Californians living with HIV and AIDS filed a case brought under the ACA's anti-discrimination provision, taking on their drug plan in a fight over how they get the medications they need to survive. In this particular case, we got an important circuit court win uh, for the plaintiffs and access to medication. However, there are important cases around the country that have gone the other way. 
So it seems particularly important that in this case, the appellate court said that patients can bring a claim of discrimination under Section 1557 of the ACA if they are disproportionately impacted by a policy. Art, talk to us about this case. Okay, this is this is really interesting. Uh, it seems that CBS Pharmacy is the uh, pharmaceutical manager for a lot of employee benefit plans that include drug coverage. Uh, and that's the capacity in which this case arose. Uh, CVS Pharmacy decided to adopt a new policy under which they would only cover for, for drugs that they designated as specialty drugs. They would only cover it through their specialty pharmacy program, which meant that if you wanted your drug to be covered and it was listed as a specialty drug, you had to get it from their mail order pharmacy. You couldn't get it from your community uh, pharmacy where you know the pharmacist and the pharmacist is monitoring your medications and everything. It would have to go through that. And uh, if it wasn't listed as a specialty uh, drug, you would still get it through your community pharmacy. All right. So the people who are HIV positive, many of them, you know, they have multiple prescriptions. Some of them were listed as in the specialty pharmacy. There were specialty meds, uh, the ones that are specifically associated with HIV. But some of the meds that they're taking are not in the specialty program uh, because they're meds that other people use also that, that without the condition, some conditions which are side effects of HIV uh, and some just because the patients are getting older and they have other meds, you know. So all of a sudden, they're going to have to get some of their meds by mail order and either delivered directly to them or delivered to a designated pharmacy where they pick it up. And that's not necessarily their community pharmacy. The evidence was that sometimes if they wanted to have it done that way, that it's dropped at a pharmacy rather than delivered to their home by the postal service, they would have to travel significant uh, distances. Uh, and if it's not in network, it's not covered which means it's not just that it would be somewhat more expensive for them to continue getting these things through their community pharmacy. They would be spending thousands of dollars a month because HIV meds are very expensive. These are complex, high-tech antivirals. So, uh, you know, they, they were looking at this. And in addition, of course, that meant that their local community pharmacist would not necessarily be informed of all the meds they're taking. And one of the roles of your community pharmacist is to be aware of all the drugs you're taking to look for cross, you know, problems and reactions. And HIV is an evolving virus in people's bodies as they take drugs. And so monitoring things, you want your local pharmacist, or at least they, they allege in this, that you want your local pharmacist to know all the drugs you're taking and to be aware and clued in and to provide you with guidance and monitoring of your situation. So they said uh, in their suit, they brought a, a panoply of claims, not just under the Affordable Care Act. They were suing under ERISA. They were suing under uh, some people under the Vocational Rehabilitation Act. They were suing under the Unruh statute in California, which is their public accommodation statute. It was uh, multi-barreled. I mean, they have a big team of lawyers, uh, as we indicate at the end of the story. Uh, there were uh, 
you know, looking at it, I have this big paragraph at the end of the story that I added on. Uh, Wendy Bacovny wrote this for me, uh, but I added a paragraph listing all the attorneys and all these disability rights groups. Uh, so they had a, a big team and they put together this multi-barrel complaint and it came before District Judge Edward Chen in uh, the U.S. District Court in San Francisco and he just turned it down. He said the pleadings don't state claims for discrimination here because on its face this doesn't discriminate and they were trying to argue disparate impact on HIV patients because of the complicated nature of the pharmaceutical uh, array that they get and he just didn't buy it but the Ninth Circuit did. Uh, it's sort of ironic Judge Chen was appointed by President Obama and he turned down the case it goes up to the Ninth Circuit and you get a panel uh, Judge, uh, Judge Smith uh, who wrote the opinion for the panel was appointed by George W. Bush uh, the other circuit judge on the panel, Andrew Horowitz, was appointed by Obama, and there was a district judge sitting on the panel who was appointed by Bush. So it's like two Bush appointees and an Obama appointee, and they reversed Chen, the Obama appointee, and they said, no, this is too narrow a view of what's required under the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act requires that you be provided reasonable access to the medications you need. And that's about more than the money. I mean, obviously, if an HIV uh, patient can come up with thousands of dollars on their own, they can keep getting their HIV meds at their local pharmacy. But this is about more than that. This is about requiring them to split up their prescriptions between what they can get at the local pharmacy and what they have to get through the mail order. And that with the mail order, they were relying on their pharmacist to monitor their response to uh, the combination of drugs and with the mail order, the mail order house does, they don't know about the non, you know, it's a, it's a separate what's program. What's been going on with the mail? I haven't gotten a yeah. letter in months. <laughs> I just got some mail this week that was mailed at the beginning of December. In fact, some of it was year-end uh, solicitations for donations from charities and they came after the end of the year, you know, and I actually got an email from one of them. They said, we just learned that people are just starting to receive the letters we sent out the first week in December and we're like abashed, you know, uh, but, but the point is that the, uh, the Court of Appeals panel said, okay, we agree with Judge Chen. Certain of these claims weren't adequately pled under some of these statutes, but as far as the Affordable Care Act claim goes, we find that they have stated a claim under the Affordable Care Act and we remand now uh, so that they can prove what they're alleging because obviously this, this went on motion, motion to dismiss, so all we had were allegations from the plaintiffs. So if they can prove that this significantly impacts their access to the medication they need to survive, then it's a violation of the Affordable Care Act on a disparate impact theory. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, that they just singled out HIV people or something. It's they, they, they did this for a lot of medications. Basically, really expensive meds they put into the specialty program and they don't want them to come through the community pharmacies uh, because they have more control over the price. You know, they can, uh, they can negotiate with the drug companies if they're uh, getting things in bulk and stuff like that. Uh, and presumably CVS is managing a lot of pharmaceutical plans. So they're probably buying lots of meds and they can negotiate stuff uh, so they can save money. But the point is that this really is more than the mere inconvenience. It's a danger to the patients. And uh, it's important that uh, this opinion came out because there's a contrary opinion from the Sixth Circuit 
so uh, because CBS, you know, is handling things nationwide. They're not just handling California. These happen to be California patients, and there was an UNRU Act claim, but the the court found that they did. Uh, Judge Chen found that they didn't adequately allege facts that would support a public accommodations claim under the UNRU Act. That CBS is a public accommodation. Okay, and of course, this case will go back to the district court level to see uh, where we go from here, but definitely an important case. Let's go ahead and take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about our final case of this segment. Okay, we're back. Defamation claims are about disgrace. In life, saying that someone is gay is not an insult. Being identified as gay is not shameful. Last month, thanks to a New York appeals court ruling, the law in New York is catching up with life. The second department held that falsely labeling someone as gay is no longer enough to establish a case of per se defamation. Art, talk to us about the facts in this particular case and how the law in this area continues to change. Okay, when I studied for the bar exam, and I'm dating myself here. This is 1977, <laughs> before some many of our listeners were born. But when I was studying for the bar exam, I was shocked to learn when they talked about defamation law in the bar review course that it was considered defamation per se to falsely label someone as gay because it was considered uh, defamation per se is what applies when it is just assumed that it's going to cause serious harm to an individual falsely labeled them as gay. And remember the context. This was 1977. It was illegal to have gay sex in New York. There was no protection against discrimination. Uh, Gay people were not allowed to serve in the military. Uh, Gay people had trouble getting uh, professional licenses and things. Uh, Lambda Legal, just a few years before, had to sue the, uh, the, the court system in order to get chartered. It was held that it wasn't a charitable purpose to represent gay people. Uh, So, you know, it was a different world. Well, we've had a lot of progress since then. And the issue now is, is that old rule obsolete? Now, the second department reaffirmed that old rule in 1984 uh, in a case called Matheson against Marcello. And... The Matheson case was issued at a time when all four appellate departments in New York took that same position, that it was defamation per se to falsely call someone gay. But the third department upstate broke ranks on that a few years ago in uh, a case called Unati versus Mincola. That was in 2012. That was the year after we got marriage equality in New York. And uh, the third department said, okay, look, the the Court of Appeals got rid of the sodomy law. The legislature amended the human rights law to ban discrimination against gay people. And now we have same-sex marriage in New York. Uh, It seems that society has changed its views about homosexuality. And we shouldn't assume that falsely calling someone gay is going to be incredibly harmful. And that doesn't mean it might not be harmful in certain cases, but then it's up to the plaintiff to allege special damages. They have to show that they have actually suffered significant economic loss or the loss of a job or something like that by being falsely labeled as gay. And if they allege special damages, we'll let them proceed with their defamation case. All right. So that was the third department. 
Now, at the time, of course, there was there were these precedents and the three other departments going the other way. So the third department's decision did not create a statewide precedent. The way it works in New York is if the appellate division decides a new question of law as to which there is no appellate authority in the state, its ruling is a statewide precedent. But if there are contrasting rulings in the other appellate divisions, it's not a statewide precedent. And appellate divisions can disagree with each other. It's only the Court of Appeals that can, re that can uh, rationalize that and make a statewide precedent. And for some reason, the New York Court of Appeals has never been interested in this. I think they denied a petition for review in the Anadi case. So they haven't pronounced on this. So the uh, precedent in the second department is that uh, case from 1984, Matheson. All right, so this dispute arises over in Brooklyn uh, between Pierre Laguerre, who was an elder at the Gethsemane Seventh-day Adventist Church in Brooklyn. And he had a falling out with the pastor, Jean Renald Maurice. I mean, this is, we're told, it's a uh, French Seventh-day Adventist church. So that all these people have French names. <laughs> I don't know if their services are in French or in Latin. Who knows? But... Uh, they had some falling out on some church-related issue, which the court doesn't discuss in the opinion. The opinion for the appellate division is by uh, Justice Sherry Roman. Uh, so, but it was centered around some church-related issue. And uh, Pastor Maurice said to Laguerre, if you do not submit to me, I will crumble you. I will tell the congregation that you're gay and that you watch gay porn on the computers at the church. Oh, wow. Well, the gay porn piece seems to be a little bit of a separate issue, no? <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, Laguerre uh, refuses to give in. And so at a congregational meeting with over 300 people present, Pastor Maurice declared that Laguerre was gay and that he was uh, watching gay porn on the computers and outraged the congregation voted to uh, take away his position as an elder in the church to uh, – uh, toss him out as a member. So he, he brought a defamation case. Uh, he knew that as a matter of First Amendment free exercise, he couldn't sue them for uh, removing him as an elder of the church. Okay. Uh, that would be a ministerial exception to any kind of discrimination charge. But he could bring a defamation case. So he claimed that it was defamation per se, as per the uh, Second Department, uh, precedent, and that he should be able to sue Pastor Maurice for defaming him. And the trial judge said, uh, yeah, uh, refused to, uh, to dismiss the case because that's the second department precedent. There were other arguments that were made by uh, Pastor Maurice. He said uh, that it violates free exercise of religion to let him sue me for defamation. The court said, no, it doesn't. This, this is a matter of civil law, not of theological law as to whether it's defamation. There's a, uh, an appeal here by Laguerre. And uh, what it ends up holding is they're persuaded by Unati versus Minkola, the uh, third department president, and the second circuit lines up with it. And they say he didn't allege special damages. That is, he didn't allege that he suffered any economic harm as a result of this. I'm assuming that positions of elders in the church are not compensated. That it's more of an honorific. Uh, and uh, so he lost nothing by this. Uh, if he did, he should have alleged special damages. He didn't. Now, you know, how does this stand up 
with defamation law around the country. Mixed bag, but in recent years, there when the when the issue has come up, courts have almost universally held, uh, especially uh, since uh, Lawrence versus Texas got rid of the sodomy laws, and especially with marriage equality. Uh, and I would think now with the Bostock decision, now that we have protection under Title VII, it's even more uh, cemented in that falsely calling someone gay is not necessarily going to wreck their reputation. It's not going to necessarily uh, cause harm to them. So unless they can show that it actually did cause harm to them, it's not actionable. And remember, uh, under defamation law in the U.S., truth is a defense. So what we're talking about is false allegations of defamation. So the plaintiffs aren't gay people who are suing about being outed. They're straight people who are suing about being called gay. And so it's sort of one of those sign of the times things that uh, society has so evolved on this issue that it is no longer considered per se defamatory to call someone gay, even when it's untrue. Yeah, and I'm wondering if the Court of Appeals didn't take this up because it's not an issue that comes up all that much. Right. It's it's just occasional. Uh, and uh, maybe the Court of Appeals, they saw the Anadi decision. They said the other departments are likely to follow this when it comes up because it's a persuasive opinion. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, But I think it's it's an important sign of the times that we've gotten rid of that old chestnut. And it always... It always uh, brings uh, back memories to me of how horrified I was when uh, I was told in my bar review course that uh, the courts consider it so uh, so uh, devastatingly harmful to someone to call them gay that they were treating it as per, per se. Uh, I mean, the per se categories are like accusing someone of committing a heinous crime or having uh, a, uh, a loathsome disease. In fact, there are some cases saying falsely saying that someone is HIV positive is still considered defamatory per se. Yeah. Because it's it's a it's a disease that causes people to be discriminated against. That causes people to be shunned, and we still have that. If you, if you read uh, the law notes uh, cases on HIV related discrimination, that still happens. Yeah, and I guess I'm going to date myself too. When I was studying for the bar exam, this was certainly a per se category that was lumped in there with loathsome disease, uh, and so. Uh, this was before marriage equality. And yes, it's a pretty uh, decent reminder that times they are a change in, even though sometimes it can feel very slow. All right, so let's move on to the of note segment. I thought I had it figured out, but then we ended up talking about uh, executive orders and uh, rolling them back at the very outset. So what do you have for me now, Art? Well, what we're talking about here is a decision out of the Supreme Court of Nevada on December 23rd uh, about Obergefell and its retroactive application. Uh, this is one thing we've been tracking ever since the, uh, the Obergefell decision came out. To what extent is it retroactive? So this was a divorce action between a lesbian couple, uh, Mary Elizabeth LaFrance and Gail Klein, Nevada residents, in 2000. They went to Vermont and got a civil union. Uh, and then in 2003, when same-sex marriage became available in certain provinces of Canada, it didn't become available nationwide in Canada until 2005, but in 2003, we had the first provinces where their highest courts uh, went for marriage equality. They went to Canada and they got married there. And they you know, came back and they're living in Nevada. And Nevada, of course, didn't recognize the marriage at the time. It didn't recognize the Vermont civil union at the time. 
Subsequently, Nevada did pass a, a law allowing people to register domestic partnerships, and they could have registered their civil union as a domestic partnership, but they didn't. All right, and eventually they decided to break up as a couple, and uh, they went into a Nevada state court uh, for a dissolution of assets. This was in 2014. Now, what was happening in the world of marriage equality in 2014? That was the period between the Windsor decision and the Obergefell decision when litigation was sprouting all over the country on marriage equality. And uh, actually, Nevada got marriage equality before Obergefell because uh, they had a uh, ruling from the Ninth Circuit that their uh, a ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court denied cert on that. So they started with, uh, with same-sex marriage late in 2014, but these women had already filed their divorce proceeding. And the issue for the court is Nevada is a community property state. Everything acquired by both women during the marriage is community property subject to division between them, unless a particular acquisition of particular property is documented as uh, intended only to be the property of one of them. So uh, when did their community get formed for purposes of community property? And uh, Ms. Klein said, oh, in 2000, when we got a Vermont Civil Union. And uh, the, uh, Ms. LaFrance said, well, no, our community was formed in 2014 when Nevada had to start recognizing our Canadian marriage. And the issue for the trial judge was, which way do I go? I mean, either way, it's, it's sort of retroactive. But uh, what about that Canadian marriage in 2003? If Obergefell is retroactive as a constitutional decision based on an amendment adopted after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment, it must have been unconstitutional not to recognize that Canadian marriage in 2003. But that's not what the trial judge did. He went back to the Vermont Civil Union. He said, I think that this marital community starts at the Vermont Civil Union. And so it was appealed by Ms. LaFrance. And uh, the Supreme Court said, well, she's not right and Klein isn't right. It isn't 2014. It isn't 2000. It's 2003. We're going to say that pursuant to Obergefell, it was unconstitutional. As soon as these women got married in Canada, their marriage should have been recognized in Nevada. So we're going to uh, date their marital community to 2003. We're going to remand this case to the district, to the trial judge, to do the property division based on looking at all property acquired by these parties from 2003 onwards until they filed the divorce petition. And that property will be subject to, uh, to disposition. So I think it's, you know, it's of note the way the courts are applying Obergefell retroactively. It certainly is of note, and one thing that never changes is there are always going to be lesbians, gays, uh, same-sex couples going into family court and arguing whatever makes the most sense, whether it's detrimental to the community in order to get out of paying more money to the other uh, in some of these family and divorce cases. So uh, same-sex couples behaving badly is nothing new. Okay, well, Art, thank you so much for joining us, and thank all of our listeners for listening. We'll be back with a Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT podcast next month. 
And of course, we'll have a few other podcasts in the meantime to talk about what's going on with the new administration. Thanks for listening.